me, you just you don't stop at the first idea. You never do. You always go to that second, third, fourth, fifth idea, and then you take a step back and see how you can improve any of them. So, you know, like today I had a cartoon on the loyalty pledge supposedly Trump had asked Comey for, and I'm happy that I did not actually put his face or his name in the cartoon at all. It was the Oval Office and the desk, and I had a throne in the background, but you, everyone knows, you know, who I'm commenting on. So, you know, that's kind of how I handle the, the creative challenges. Always try to be a little different. Welcome to It's All Journalism. I'm Michael O'Connell here with another podcast about good journalism. Today I'm joined on the phone with Amber Healy, one of our producers, who reached out to today's guest, Adam Ziglis. Hey, Amber, how's it going? I'm good, Mike. How are you? Great. Adam is a Pulitzer Prize winning editorial cartoonist for the Buffalo News. His cartoons have appeared around the world, including in publications like the Washington Post, USA Today, the New York Times, and the Los Angeles Times. Welcome to the podcast, Adam. Amber, since you set up this interview, I'm going to go ahead and let you uh, start things off. Adam, again, I just want to thank you for uh, taking the time out to uh, talk with us today. Editorial cartoons, you know, are such an interesting part of the paper. They're not, they don't follow the same format as the daily articles, but I, I would imagine that you might draw some inspiration from the conversations happening, you know, in the newsroom around you. What's a typical day for you? A typical day, and, and you're right, I do draw inspiration from my colleagues for sure. I actually, I start work from home, and the work really never stops with a cartoonist. You're always consuming information, and I draw typically one finished cartoon per day, so five a week, but some days I'll execute two of them. Other days I'm using for research to get ideas, and so on a typical day, though, I'll start just by communicating, interacting with readers on today's cartoon. A big part of what I do, I believe, is Barking conversation and discussion. So I think I feel a responsibility to, you know, reply to readers and engage them and get the conversation going. And then, you know, right now it's so difficult to sort of always stay informed. And the biggest challenge to be an editorial cartoonist, especially today, is your beat is really everything. You know, reporters have certain beats, but editorial cartooning, it's sort of, you know, um, anything of interest to the reader is fair game to you. So sports, you know, education, local issues, state issues, national, international. So that's the constant struggle is to always stay up to, you know, as current as you can and consume information at the depth you need to get an informed opinion. And so or sometime around noon, midday, you know, I'll really start fleshing out some ideas and brainstorming. And that shifts from the role of like a, you know, a columnist in that first part of the day in terms of reading and developing my message to more of a copywriter for an ad agency where you would, you know, I would brainstorm. I have different techniques I use to sort of get some ideas, you know, whether it's a visual metaphor or a narrative of some form to sort of to express that, that message I want to get, get across. And I can come up with sometimes three to five concepts for that same editorial message. And the final part of the day is, you know, when the, I'm under the gun with the deadline and I need to execute this cartoon, you know, working on the composition and some of the issues that come with illustration in terms of, you know, contrast and layout and getting everything the way I want it, want it to be. And I would say my goal is to start drawing at two, but I realistically I ended up pushing that till three 
and I, I use about an hour at the end of the day to, to sort of finish the artwork to ideally be done between four and five. Do you get much feedback from the editorial staff as to, you know, do you share it before you're finished or is it you, you present a finished product? Yeah, I, I actually, I love working in the newsroom. I mean, I start the day working from home and I also color my cartoons at home uh, in my home office at night often or on weekends for the syndicate and the website. But being in the newsroom, especially, you know, closer to my deadline, I think is essential because there's a handful of people that, you know, I call my, my cartoon screeners, where I'll, I'll go around with my current stack of cartoons and I'll shuffle them up in sort of, you know, my own way to sort of not stack the deck. I, don't, I, I try not to put my favorite first every time to kind of just give, you know, sort of a fairness to the process. And my goal is to show, you know, these really well-informed reporters and editors and even designers, there's a group of people I just like to, to show, so they, I get a sense of how this communicates. And it's not, it's not sort of picked by committee, but it's, you know, somebody may say, this to me, you know, is a bit confusing. Or, you know, did you realize that this is sending this kind of message? And because I'm working in visual communication, I can't really draw in the corner of my office and assume it will, you know, work really great, you know, to, you know, 100,000 Buffalo news readers. You know, I need to sort of screen it out. And my editor of the editorial page is really great, too. He's a wonderful editor. And, you know, they do give suggestions when need be, but generally I just show him what I'm going with. And it's ultimately up to me to pick, you know, the cartoon I'd like to do as long as, you know, he has to sign off on it, obviously, before I finish. But that's a, that's pretty much how, how it works. And, um, you know, where typically do you get your inspiration? Is it from the daily news or are you getting, you know, just in your conversations with other people? Really everywhere as much as possible because concepts come from, your daily life often. You know, I have two little kids, and I, I realized when I was, you know, staying at home for, for several months with my firstborn, my son, and then the, the subsequent months following, I was using, you know, metaphors that were relating to parenthood and children and to get my, my messages across. And so, you, you, you know, you kind of draw what you know. And so not only do I pay attention to my conversations I have and interactions I have outside of work, but I'm always consuming news. You know, I have NPR on in the car and consuming cu- the culture side of news as well, you know, because I think a lot of cartoonists, one sort of, you know, tool we use is we take a piece of current culture that maybe isn't political and sort of use that as a vehicle to make a statement on, on you know, the current event we're talking about. So it infuses a piece of sort of pop culture. It makes it clever, but it also makes it current and relevant. So, you know, I'm always consuming whatever's out there and following my colleagues for inspiration and seeing what they do so I avoid maybe, you know, try I try to be original. So any good cartoonist should follow everyone else just to see what's out there, um, you know, see what, what other cartoonists are doing and, and how they're inspiring people. Are there any particular cartoonists that sort of inspired you or still inspire you? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, growing now and when I was growing up, I think – the advantage, I mean, I have now is that I, I never grew up sort of following the artwork of editorial cartoonists, so which allowed my artwork to grow on its own and be a little different. So I used to, you know, follow Mad Magazine, like Jeff Davis, Mad Magazine artists like that, and David Levine is one of my favorite artists, uh, New York Review of Books, caricaturist, um, you know, brilliant line work, uh, and, and underground comic artists like R. Crumb, you know, those those guys have always inspired me growing up. 
even comic book artists, Tom McFarlane and, and others. But as I, you know, grew into consuming political cartoons, you know, I just loved everything I could find. But, you know, these days, really inspired by some of the guys that are just right at the top of their game, I think Matt Davies, Clay Bennett, Steve Sack, and all three of them are mentors of mine in a way from when I was in college. I, I started a relationship with them, and Matt Davies is in Newsday right now. He's hosting our next convention in the, this fall at Hofstra, and, and Steve Sack is in Minneapolis. And, you know, there's there's many others, really, but those are the two current working guys that uh, I think are really – and Jack Oman, and he's, he's doing some excellent work as well. Um, he won the Pulitzer last year. Yeah, so, I mean, to me, I think the goal is to always evolve and always be inspired, and hopefully in five to ten years, my work will still look, will look different than it does now, and hopefully, you know, I'll be hopefully happier with it and always grow. It's a challenge. Are you unhappy with your work now? I'm never happy with it, I guess is the way I would answer that. Um, <laughs> I'm rarely happy with it. I, I'm kind of my worst, my own worst critic, which is, I think, which is healthy, you know. There are days where I am satisfied with how things came out, but I'm always finding, you know, ways where I could have improved it or, or I'm trying to, um, you know, just kind of push it to the next level if I can. Um, you know, at this point, though, it's just so hard to catch up with, with the news that I haven't found the time to really push the artwork to a different, you know, level, which I think happens over the course of years, though. Sort of sounds like you're more like a reporter than maybe I was expecting. Um, having worked in a newsroom for a long time, and I think Mike can agree with me on this, you can always look back on your pieces and say, man, I should have written it this way. I should have included that quote. I could have done this uh, segue better. And I, I was wondering if, if you see yourself as kind of a, a, a reporter in some sense, because you do have to follow the news and you have to see what's going on and put your own, I don't want to say spin, but your own view on something that other people might very well be illustrating the same day. Yeah, I mean, I think there's many overlaps in terms of how, you know, we have to stay completely informed and how fast the deadline approaches. I think there's definitely a lot of similars with the columnist. I, mean, I think essentially what I do is a visual column. So, you know, the, the, one of the large differences is I don't get an assignment. So, you know, each day I have a blank, you know, sheet of paper, and I need to, over the years, the toughest thing I discovered was making that decision. Do I cover this? Really figuring out what I find important to say. And that was the hardest thing, being a young cartoonist and not having the depth of knowledge on certain issues. So I had to research a lot of stuff. And, and the more I've lived through history and politics, the more I have that, you know, as an asset. And I can I can really focus on, on you know, following my instinct at this point and, and knowing what my voice is. But yeah, it is there are very many similarities, um, and the, you know the nature of the deadline, and also relying on the resources in the newsroom. You you sort of touched on the fact that that you were drawing in college. Can you sort of talk about your experience and how you ended up becoming a editorial cartoonist? Yeah, I I went to Canisius College uh, in Buffalo, and and I had a, I had a great experience there. I I was raised by super practical parents, so I was talked out of really looking into art school. But I had a passion for math and computer science, and I took some advanced computer science courses in high school. So Canisius, I focused on computer science and math and uh, ended up doing a, a minor in studio art. And my original thought was I'd combine two sides of my brain to do computer graphics where I could be creative but think critically. 
and I found the more I went through the computer science program, software engineering became so specialized where you would really just be the technical guy that would execute, you know, maybe the vision of this animator or a character designer. So I, I really started seeing, getting disillusioned by it a little bit. And it was even more so I'd be one small cog in like this machine dependent, overly dependent on everybody where I would draw cartoons for the school paper. I was turned on to the school paper by my honors professor, my English 101 honors professor. He was you know, doing an icebreaker around the room, and I said I used to draw caricatures to make extra money, Six Flags. And he's like, yeah, you should join the paper. We need, we need a cartoonist. So, you know, I just took his advice and ended up drawing a cartoon a week on life, uh, student life, campus life. And then I draw, after 9-11, 9-11 really changed my focus and, you know, really grabbed me in terms of getting me into politics and history and why are we here. And I started drawing political cartoons after that. And at that point, I started seeing how I could really control this four by five inch space. And, you know, I'd be my own boss in a sense. And I would be getting feedback from readers on campus and the power of having a voice and having an impact that way was really alluring to me. And so I decided to write my honors thesis on editorial cartooning instead of computer science. You could write it on anything. And it took me years to realize that computer science and math training is perfect for being a cartoonist. And it sounds like it isn't, but if you think about it, computer science and well, math in particular, you are working in symbols. You break down a problem into an abstract formula and you create a solution. Political cartoons are all symbols. And, you know, if you look at, you know, expressing an opinion as this a problem that you need to solve, you know, you use creativity just like in the higher levels of math where you're solving theorem, you know, writing theorems. And and so the, the functions of the brain seem to really kind of have a similar type of thing. And I never knew it until years later. I'm like, this is actually, actually relevant. <laughs> where, you know, if you do have a background in, I took history and, political science courses in my honors program, but, you know, if you're a reporter, jumping from reporting to political cartooning, really the meat of what you're doing as a cartoonist, that thinking abstractly is really hard to do unless you are, you know, practice doing it. Yeah. Um, it's like a muscle you need to exercise. Yeah, and it's interesting. I, I was going over my notes here as you were talking, and the citation from the Pulitzer Prize winning, or Pulitzer Prize for Editorial Cartooning Committee about your work said strong images to connect with readers while conveying levels of meaning in few words. So that sort of speaks to and being recognized for your work that you're doing where you're, you're speaking to your audience through pictures, very obviously, but also abstract ideas and making them understandable. Right. And the citation, I love that, that they, they note, you know, they cited the layers of meaning and there are a lot of times in my cartoons, I will have sort of a second or third, you know, subtle message that is kind of built in there for people that really know the history of something or a reference, you know, to something to make it a little more clever or relevant. And if it have like a second meaning to it that works with the, you know, the original message and it's tricky to do in a single image. And that is kind of, I think the beauty of cartoons are like poems in that way where they're dense a really great cartoon is like a poem in a way that there's layers of meaning into it if it's done carefully. 
Right. And it doesn't necessarily need to be detailed per se. It just, you know, it's whatever you choose to draw in the way you present it um, can have a lot, right. of, a lot of different meanings, what you choose to draw, I guess. So, well, what was the experience like winning the Pulitzer? That was, you know, it's still, I still have to remind myself that that happened because it was, it was pretty wild. I mean, it was, you know, it's really hard to put into words. It was unexpected, and the way I found out was just perfect in terms of, you know, I, nobody told me in advance I was a finalist or anything. I just, you know, the way I found out was when they announced it during the press conference, it was Monday, April 20th. And, you know, they do a Monday in April, they announce the Pulitzer's, and Mike Pride, the administrator, was, you know, at the podium, and people were streaming it in newsrooms around the country. I t- really didn't expect anything, so I, I hit play, and my, my feed in my office was delayed a little bit. So I was drawing I was drawing the cartoon for the following day and had it on in the background. I didn't realize it was, you know, 30 to 40 seconds delayed. So, you know, as I'm drawing, I just start hearing shouts sort of in the newsroom and like something was wrong almost. It kind of sounded alarming. And then I, because my office is in the corner and so I'm not right in the middle of the newsroom. I wasn't sure what was happening. I have this little closet of a space that Tom Poles used, used to occupy. And um, then my phone started, you know, just, buzzing and didn't stop and I pick up the phone and I just I saw a congrats text and then I just I started piecing it together but it just didn't hit me and I kind of slowly walked out of the editorial offices to like the whole newsroom like a mob of journalists just like marching toward me like cheering <laughs> and there, you know it was in, it just did not seem real and that, that whole week was just pretty wild you know I tried to get back to everybody you know anyone I've ever known or, or really even people that didn't know me were reaching out and Buffalo shines in moments like this. I really felt like this was, you know, just a victory for the whole city. And I was really, you know, one member of the giant family of the city of Buffalo. Everyone was, you know, people were hugging me. Strangers were giving me high fives. I mean, I feel like this can't happen other places. It was pretty amazing and it will be, you know, forever just a special time, you know, in my life. So yeah, it was, it was very memorable and and, it, and you know it still kind of continues on at this point where when they, I was a judge for the last two years for the Pulitzers and each time they announce I kind of relive those moments. Yeah and what is it about Western New York and editorial cartooning? You mentioned Tom <laughs> Tolls uh, who was another great cartoonist. Had you had much exposure to his work? Yeah growing up I mean in Buffalo you you have to know Tom Toll's work and so I was familiar with his work growing up but you know being a kid you know most of the content of political cartoons is just you know above you know over your head so I always thought his stuff was really interesting in terms of like the style and I liked looking at it but then I really fell in love with his, with his stuff when I was maybe closer to graduating high school and getting into college and I started really digging up, you know, researching other cartoonists. And I always just loved how how incredibly unique he was. And his approach was very intellectual and very smart. You know, the goal in cartooning is to be original. And, you know, if anything else, Tolls is like 100%, 110% original all the time. And that I always sort of, you know, looked up to him for and like tried to emulate. And, I mean, the nice thing is, you know, he was very different as an artist, or is, than I am. And so there was no sort of instant comparison because we're so different stylistically and in our approach. And I think that's that worked out nicely because 
following Tom, you know, is difficult. Very big shoes to fill, and not only Tom, but Bruce Shanks, who would want a Pulitzer. You know, I mean, I think what's going on in Buffalo is um, it's a great town for art and journalism because the sense of community, the sense of history that that the city has. Um, And, you know, I think going through hard times is, you know, actually good for a city's arts, I think. And so you have that as a backdrop, but then you also have the Buffalo News who, when, when they did have early success with, like, Bruce Shanks, they honored that tradition and they gave each subsequent cartoonist the proper freedom and support they needed. And I think that's what's critical. A lot of papers, if they would do that, if they would truly give the cartoonist, you know, treat them as an independent commentator and and let them be creative and not try to interfere, interfere, which happens with with cartoonists in newsrooms, that that kind of restricts, I think, the success of a cartoonist. And that hasn't happened in Buffalo. And I think that's a, a really important part of why we've had a great tradition yeah, what's what's funny is before I turned on the the mics here, we spoke briefly because I, I wasn't too sure you're going to be able to be in the interview because there was a a White House press conference going on about today's crisis, and you know I asked you if you sure. needed to cover it, and your response was, "Well, it'll be a crisis tomorrow." Um, <laughs> what's it like covering the this the political environment now as a cartoonist? Everyone, it's actually quite <laughs> difficult and stressful, and and, and in a way, it, it's you know it, there is so much material, and it's a blessing and a curse. So it's a double-edged sword. I mean, you obviously don't have to you know dig too deep to find material, but you know, and so people I will talk to around the newsroom or around town, they'll be like, "This has got to be so great for you," and. <laughs> And I always think that's kind of odd. It's like saying to, you know, a surgeon, you know, there's a, uh, there are two busfuls of kids that just like flew off the cliff. You have so much work to do. This is awesome. You don't have to, I'm thinking like, this is, the country's in turmoil. I shouldn't be celebrating this. And because the moment, the historical moment is so big, there's pressure to really, you know, not, you know, let this moment go to waste. So, I mean, you, you're trying to do your very best work all the time and you cannot cover the bases that you want to and cover the issues because there's just too much. You know, the nature of this, the Trump administration kind of lurches from crisis to crisis. You have to pick and choose. And I think the downside is some local cartoons I would do or, you know, or issues that I'm passionate about that I would do on a regular basis fall to the wayside when I'm obligated really to cover, you know, a huge story coming out of Washington. So in a way, it is it is a gift, you know, his personality and, you know, his hair, you know, you name it. But, but it's also, it, it is also becoming like a challenge. You know, you also don't want to get the readers numb to, you don't want to become shrill and always seem like you're hitting the same topic too much. So you're, I, for, I purposely try to take the president's face out of the cartoon or find fresh approaches to comment so it doesn't seem like you're really seeing the same thing over and over again. So, so tell me about the challenge of that. I mean, you have obviously this is a, for commentators, for cartoonists, uh, as you sort of alluded to, this is a, a really kind of a ripe time, the central subject. What is it, you know, when, you know, you know oh, my God, it's another Tuesday. I got to draw another picture of, of Donald Trump. What is your secret for, for drawing him? What is it when you when you get down on paper, what do you think encapsulates him? Well, you know, as, as you mentioned, it's really a heyday for, you know, satire in general, political satire. And 
and cartoonists cartoons are really having kind of a resurgence in popularity, at least online and social media. And with you know, you, I try to resist the urge to do gratuitous cartoons with the president because you will see some cartoonists kind of take the bait on things and go after sort of a salacious topic or visual just because they know it might be popular with their fan base. And that is something I'm trying I always try to keep in mind. You know, always the message should be the driving factor, not something frivolous or superficial with what's going on with the president. So, you know, the point isn't to make a joke. It's always to make a strong statement. And even when it, we aren't in this crisis, I'm following my colleagues to see what they're doing so I stay unique. So the challenge is now when I know everyone is commenting on the same crisis, you don't want to have what we call a Yahtzee where a bunch of cartoonists do the same cartoon. And it, that happens from time to time, and it's it's embarrassing. Um, and it's just it's hard to avoid always because there you know 50 to 70 cartoonists are making commentary on you know one man for that day and you know this one issue for instance. So the challenge is just think creatively. To me, you just you don't stop at the first idea. You never do. You always go to that second, third, fourth, fifth idea, and then you take a step back and see how you can improve any of them. So, you know, like today I had a cartoon on the loyalty pledge supposedly Trump had asked Comey for, and I'm happy that I did not actually put his face or his name in the cartoon at all. It was the Oval Office and the desk, and I had a throne in the background, but you, everyone knows, you know, who I'm commenting on. So, you know, that's kind of how I handle the, the creative challenges, always try to be a little different. and you know, push the ideas to sort of, you know, the next level of brainstorm if I can. Yeah, and you're able to get the par product. I'm looking at the cartoon uh, product placement in there as well, Pledge. Right. <laughs> that's, that's the layer of meaning, I guess, that, that they were, you were talking about before, the many different layers. Um, you, you mentioned that, that, you know, while you're focus, focusing on this, there are other things that you, you're, you know, much more interested in, in trying to get the message out about. What What subjects do you like to or at least – like to bring to people's attention? I'm really passionate about social justice issues and you know, human rights issues. Being from Buffalo and going to Canisius College, a, you know, a Jesuit school, and how my parents raised me to sort of empathize, and you know, we're in a historically you know, poor region, I think covering issues of, of poverty and injustice I think are really important to me. And those are often not front page stories because they're not big splashy scandals. So, you know, I think when there is some more downtime in terms of the news cycle, that is always a good time for me to dig deeper and point our readers in a direction and say, hey, we should be thinking about this. It's more difficult to do that now. Although last year, a lot of these issues did become front burner issues with the Black Lives Matter movement and police brutality. That, you know, struck a chord with me, as well as, you know, gay rights, LGBT community, and the push for their, you know, equal treatment with, with the bathroom bill, and that became a front-burner issue this past year as well. We actually had our convention in Duke when I was president last year, so we hosted at Duke University in the sort of, you know, the state of the bathroom bill controversy. So we had a cartoon show on the issue, and we had, you know, several speakers on it. So that I was proud that we really kind of pushed that issue last year. And the, the environment as well. I think climate change would be another issue that I'm, I mean, Buffalo's got connected to the Great Lakes. 
So I think the environment is very important here, as it is everywhere, but that's, you know, another key issue for me. You mentioned that cartooning is having a resurgence, you know, especially on social media, and I'm wondering if that in itself is sort of a double-edged sword. Um, before, you could draw a cartoon and then not see feedback for a couple of days as letters to the editor came in, or you received emails or something that way. But I'm wondering now if, you know, if it's good feedback, if it's bad feedback, if it makes sense, if you get more feedback on, let's say, the national pieces compared to the local pieces, or if... And I know sometimes you can sort of bridge the divide and make the national local. You had a cartoon, I want to say it was around Earth Day, of the environment is like a wrecking ball with a very recognizable face as said wrecking ball. And I'm, just, I'm wondering, you know, what it's like to, to draw both national and local issues and if you get a different kind of response from one or the other. It's definitely a good question. I think, like any good journalist, if you can localize a national issue, I think that's, that's perfect, and which I do try to do with the Great Lakes and with Trump's budget, with the environment, I've always said, how does this affect us? And I have, have several cartoons on that topic. And I get, I get actually, I would say, I get more feedback on some of the local, the local cartoons that really connect. Like I had one that was a positive cartoon on celebrating our diversity in the city of good neighbors with all the different immigrants we have. And I love that one. A rare, a rare positive cartoon. It got, you know, that was a really, really well received, and I got the most print requests for that, and, you know, the city really loved that. I do get, you know, Trump cartoons that really hit the mark for people also go viral. So I think it's different audiences. Um, Bill's cartoons go crazy. I have a certain, <laughs> I think, section of followers that follow me for different reasons, and so I'll notice if I do a, a good a Bill's cartoon or if I'll hit, like, local preservation, like architecture, I have these groups of people that I think are following me for that, and I'll get a ton of great response on it. I think the nice thing about social media is it sort of self-polices a little bit, for me anyway, where email, I, I get some really nasty, ugly stuff, even with phone calls and some harassing messages, and, and it's, that's escalated in the age of Trump to a little bit of a disturbing degree, and you know people feel empowered when they probably should not in terms of, you know, if, if they're trying to harass somebody. And in social media, if it's out there on Facebook or Twitter, I think the good people come in and make them point out how horrific that is. And so there's a little self-policing when it's on Twitter or Facebook. Well, Adam, this has been great talking to you. Thanks for coming on the podcast. We enjoy your work, and uh, I wish you well in, in this very challenging but um, fruitful climate that we're in right now. Thanks so much. It was a lot of fun. I appreciate it. Next time on It's All Journalism. It does suck to know that there are enough stories that even I've been involved with where I just forgot when by the time we published that story. And it, it kills you when you see another brand or another company covering basically the same thing, doing the same story, and then just writing a better headline on it and thinking, man, I just I left so much traffic on the table because I screwed up. You know, I forgot why it was somebody cared about this. And I think that's the biggest thing is just not thinking enough about why an audience cares. In our next podcast, I talk to Ryan Craggs, a New York-based editor and audience development strategist. We talk about how not to kill your social stories with bad headlines and images. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the changing state of digital news. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Podcast One. This week's podcast was produced by Nicola Grisco, 
web editor Amber Healy, and me, your host, Michael O'Connell. Got an interesting journalism story to tell? Maybe it's something we could feature on our podcast. Drop us an email at editor at itsalljournalism.com or go ahead and tweet us at alljournalism. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. The Finish the Game Podcast with your host, Sean Alexander. Draw play to Sean across the 10, the 5, touchdown Seahawks. Hey, this is Sean Alexander, NFL MVP. Check out my podcast, Finish the Game, where I discuss sports and life lessons helping you become an MVP. The Finish the Game Podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC. The What's Working in Washington podcast with your host, Jonathan Aberman. We share this region's innovative, entrepreneurial, and creative spirit. This podcast tells impressive stories of passion and spunk taking place here in the D.C. region. It illustrates how the nation's capital is anything but the stuffy, bureaucratic, politics-only reputation it tries to shed. The What's Working in Washington podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC.